The first reading is from Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 15. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among you. Amen. First one verse from Exodus chapter 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And now from Romans chapter 13, starting at verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen. We're coming to the end of a, a short series looking at commandments from uh, the Ten Commandments. And today's one is uh, about covetousness. And it, it strikes me that the sin of coveting, of wanting that which is not rightfully yours, is one of those sins that is so insidious, taking to ourselves that which does not belong to us rightfully. And we're going to draw out a, a few themes from that um, as, as we look at how both Paul and Jesus addressed this question of where the sin of covetousness takes us as Christians in our own lives and as Christian communities. Um, just by way of a, a little bit of broader context uh, in terms of churches living well 
with difference. Um, it, it is of great concern to me at the moment that the Baptist Union is uh, at risk, I think, of tearing itself apart over issues around human sexuality. And then on Pride weekend, it's worth our while noting that that is part of the background for our, our thinking about church unity and forgiveness and love. Um, our General Secretary, Lynn Green, has recently written to all churches and ministers uh, encouraging them to find ways of living well together and forgiving one another and living together in love. And that is not an injunction for us to set aside our convictions, but it is an injunction to take seriously what it is to live well with difference. Anyway, uh, as, as we begin to tease some of this out, I'm going to show in, in a moment um, a, a couple of clips from a film uh, called Beyond Forgiving, which depicts the journey of two South Africans to bring healing and reconciliation to their country post-apartheid. Uh, we're going to hear from Letlapa and Jin. They form an unlikely pair. We have um, a black atheist man and a white Christian woman. In 1993, during the post-apartheid years, Letlapa was the director of operations of the military wing of the Pan-African Congress, and he ordered reprisal massacres in response to the killing of black schoolchildren. And Jin, who we'll hear from shortly, lost her only daughter in one of these attacks. And many years later, she met and came to forgive Letlapa. And we're going to watch a couple of clips from this film as a way into our consideration of these difficult issues for us today uh, around sin and forgiveness. Andrea. For over 300 years, there was fighting in South Africa. Wars after wars after wars of resistance. I was now coming face to face with the person who was responsible for Lindy's death. For a long time, I had demonized the people I was fighting against. I had this perception of an evil person. For the first time, I met someone whose daughter died as a result of my command. How does one move from victimhood to survivor and then to wounded healer? I can only speak from my own experience. That experience of forgiveness sparks me to share the story. And I think Latapa as well. Storytelling is part of a healing process. It's a catharsis. If there was more sharing and understanding of the deep needs of people who've been marginalized, the world could be a different place. And now, Andrea, if we could move on to the second clip, please.
anyone who could perpetrate such a deed as an evil person. And then when I met him, to see his integrity and his humility. So then there was no way I could shut him out. It was like an opening of life, another window of life, because for a long time I had demonized the people I was fighting against. But when people were reaching out and even agreeing to a meeting with me, it was like an opening of a world that was until then closed to me. I made a conscious decision and a principled decision to give up my justifiable right to revenge. It's not something that one does without thought. And forgiveness is part of the process of moving from victimhood because as one takes this principal decision to give up your right to revenge and start seeing the humanity in the person who's committed uh, or perpetrated against you. You no longer feel as though the wound is just yours. You start seeing the woundedness of the other. powerful story. If you've not seen the film, uh, I recommend it. You can find it online. Um, I just want to share a verse from the hymn we just sang. It, it's a verse we don't normally sing because it, it's theologically problematic. Uh, and we, we take the pastoral, uh, well, it's more pastorally problematic than theological, but we, we take the decision not to sing it. Um, but I, I'll read it now in the context of those clips. Um, for just and unjust, a place at the table. Abuser abused with need to forgive, in anger, in hurt, a mindset of mercy. For just and unjust, a new way to live. I don't know how the idea of gin forgiving Let Lapper makes you feel, but for me it stirs mixed emotions. On the one hand, I'm deeply moved by the transformation that her actions have brought about, not only in her life and indeed in his life, but in the lives of so many others who they have affected as they have learned to work together. The woman whose daughter was killed and the man who ordered her killing. Telling the story of their journey towards forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm reminded of our trip to Palestine uh, a few years ago, and some of us here are, are going to be going again later this year. Um, we met, Jean, you may be able to help me here, the, the name of the organization of the Parents for Justice. Can you remember the name? Parents Circle, thank you. Uh, we, we met the, these people, this is in the conflict of Israel-Palestine, um, and we met these two people, one of whom had lost a daughter uh, in, um, in a Palestinian bomb attack in a market, and the other one ha had lost uh, a, a child to uh, an Israeli sniper. And again, these parents 
They describe it as the club that you don't ever want to be able to join, but their parents working together across the divide of conflict, working in schools to bring healing and reconciliation. Mixed emotions. But on the other hand, I also find myself feeling unaccountably angry by such stories. Because it seems to me as if somehow the rules of justice have been violated. Where is the righteous anger I want to cry? Why should Let, Let Lapper be free and laughing whilst Lindy's daughter is long dead by his command? And therein lies the complexity of forgiving and forgiveness and reconciliation. It's never straightforward and it's never comfortable and it's never easy. And yet still somehow we have to learn to live with conflict. We have to learn to live with anger and hatred and betrayal. We have to learn to live with emotions that demand revenge in the name of justice. We have to learn to live with logic that demands justice in the name of revenge. There's a tendency to divide conflict into two categories. On the one hand, we have conflict that exists at a community level. This encompasses everything from a riot to a war, where people involved have little or no personal knowledge of those they're in conflict with. This is what we have largely in the Ukraine at the moment. The people who are killing do not know the people who they are killing. And then, on the other hand, we have conflict at a personal level, which involves particular disagreements between people who know each other well. And some of us will only uh, ever have direct experience of community, sorry, some of us here, but only some of us will ever have direct experience of community level conflict. I've never been in a war. I've never had anybody try and kill me who doesn't know me. But my suspicion is that all of us are well acquainted with the kind of conflict that occurs at a personal level. We all know the difficulties involved in maintaining relationships over the long term, whether those are relationships within a marriage or within a friendship group or within an intentional community such as a church or a union of churches such as the Baptist Union. It is all too easy for people to find themselves in conflict with those who they know and see regularly. And I think that the sin of covetousness, of desiring that which it is not ours to have, is at the root of so much of the discord that we find in our communities and in our world. The interesting thing about the story of Jin and Let Lapper, of course, is that what started out as a community conflict between strangers evolved into a personal conflict between two individuals. As part of its journey towards reconciliation, the communal became the individual. But I think the same can, of course, also apply the other way, because individual conflicts never occur in an isolation bubble, and the sin against one is always a sin against the many. 
And so we come to our passage from Matthew's Gospel, which seems on the surface at least to offer uh, practical mechanisms for dealing with conflict when it emerges within a community such as a church. Uh, Matthew's Gospel probably written, what should we say, maybe in the 70s. Churches have already started to form by this point. And, you know, I take a little bit of heart from the fact that by the time the Jesus tradition reaches kind of 40 years after the historical life of Jesus, people are already having to record sayings of Jesus about how you deal with community conflict. If another member of the church sins against you, Jesus begins. And the subtext here, of course, is that if really means when. When another member of the church sins against you, because I'm afraid they're going to. There is no such thing as a conflict-free church. And even if there was, as the old adage goes, if you find it, don't join it, you'll ruin it. The reality is that at some point, someone who you share worship with, someone who you break bread and drink wine with, is going to say something or do something that will give you cause for grievance. It's happening within the Baptist Union. People who I have broken bread with and shared wine with are currently calling for me and others who hold my views on inclusion to be cast out. We are in conflict. The question is, what do we do about it? Well, one route might be just to have the massive row to stand up for ourselves, to fight back, to bite back, to make them see how wrong they are. Tempting. And I think, you know, I'm pretty good at that kind of street fighting in political circles. I know how to win. I've done that before. Doesn't seem very Christ-like, though, does it? Much more likely, of course, we end up just taking it on the chin, so to speak, turning the other cheek to misquote the Sermon on the Mount. Much more likely, we end up taking our anger deep into ourselves, seething quietly within whilst never letting slip our well-practiced Christian smile. God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. Much more likely... If we are strategic and careful, we find ways of distancing ourselves from the person, walking away from the groups where we will encounter them, maybe even to the extent of leaving fellowship altogether. And so we divide ourselves against ourselves and within ourselves. We take for our own what is not ours. We seek vengeance that is God's alone to dispense or withhold. Well, says Jesus in our reading today, neither of these are the right approach. And so we get his famous and oh so practical solution. First, he says, try at the earliest opportunity to resolve the conflict one to one. There is no place in Christian for communities for the kind of lots of people are saying as a cover for I want to say, but I don't quite want to own it. Just as a note, those of us in ministry often hear the, just want to let you know lots of people are saying, if it doesn't have names attached to it, who actually want to come and have the chat, it's very hard to do anything with that. And I just want to note that if 
I have ever behaved in a way which makes people feel that they can't come and talk to me, then I apologize for that. If I have ever been defensive, I'm sorry. I am only human, it happens sometimes. But I welcome the conversations because that is the way of Christ. And I will do my best to swallow down my natural defensiveness and to meet you, if you need to talk to me, with grace and love. So, at the earliest opportunity, says Jesus, try and resolve any difficulty you have one-to-one. If that doesn't work, the second step is to take a couple of others to engage in mediation with a view to restoring broken relationships. And only finally, if neither of these work, does it become a public matter with the community becoming involved in the discussion. Simple, no? Well, no, and yes. The thing is, if we try to apply Jesus's advice in a mechanical way, it can too quickly become a mechanism for social control within the community of faith. I've known churches that have used this teaching from Jesus as a kind of comply or you're out. If the pastor comes to see you and you don't conform, before you know it, everyone knows and you're persona non grata. Too many church leaders have used this as a cover for their bullying behavior towards their congregations. From the shunning practices of the Anabaptists to the excommunication of the Catholics, this teaching has been used down the centuries to both require and enforce compliance. And I think this is a long way from what Jesus intended. The community Jesus is speaking to here is a community seeking to hold together great diversity and complexity. It's a community that's struggling to be inclusive of those whom others will not tolerate. And the insight that comes to us is that if we are to be a community of genuine inclusivity, encompassing not just the strong but the weak, not just the powerful but the vulnerable, then we cannot afford to overlook the sin that seeks to take hold in our midst. Because if we do, it has the capacity to destroy the good thing which is coming into being amongst us. The confronting of sin and the challenging of the person trapped in it is not about enforcing compliance. Rather, it is about offering compassion. The threat of making a person like a tax collector or a Gentile is not about shunning or excommunicating them. It's not about throwing them out of the church. Rather, it is the issuing of a stark call to them to return home to be reconciled to the community that they have wounded. What happens to tax collectors and Gentiles? They are welcomed, they are forgiven. They are brought back in and restored. Whether or not we have the resolve and the courage to seek reconciliation with the one who has sinned against us is therefore a mark of the kind of community we are. To put it another way, do we love each other so intensely that we refuse to risk ignoring the one who is going astray? 
Do we refuse to harbour resentment, seeking instead the more difficult path of reconciliation? Now, this is not about eliminating the conflict that comes from sin or suppressing it or ignoring it or denying it. It's about dealing with it. It's happened here. It will happen again. We're going to fall out. We just are. And we fall out because it matters. The question is, what do we do with it? The community is under threat when we fall out, when we give ourselves over to the destructive power of sin. Christians must take seriously what it means to confront conflict well. Because this is the only way in which the damage already done stands any chance of moving towards healing. It's the only way in which the vulnerable will ever receive justice, and it's the only way in which the perpetrator can be restored to their proper place within the community. Too often when we talk of forgiveness, we think of it in terms of papering over the cracks. Too often we define forgiveness in terms of forgive and forget, as saying to the perpetrator of hurt that it doesn't matter, that it's forgotten. But that's not what Christian forgiveness is about sin is real and the hurt and the pain and the wrong that sin causes do matter and they cannot always be forgotten or swept away but they can be addressed carefully and with good process this is why it matters that we have good safeguarding processes we need to do this stuff well together but from those processes, the sort of processes that Jesus had in his mind when he gave his advice in Matthew, from good process around sin and forgiveness, then the possibility of genuine forgiveness can begin to emerge, which has the potential to liberate those who are entangled in the mess of sin from the chains that bind them to hurt and pain. And only through such process can the path to peace emerge. And the peace that Jesus offers is not simply the peace that emerges from the absence of violent response. The peace that Jesus offers is not the peace of the capitulator, nor is it the peace of the person so bullied and coerced that they lose their capacity to fight back. Rather, the peace of Jesus is nonviolent because it is based on truth and the telling of truth. Back to South Africa again, as Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela discovered with the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Only truth has the capacity to counter violence. Only truth can unspin the web of deceit which ensnares the unwary in its violent embrace. Truth is not something to be feared. It is truth that brings the works of darkness into the light so they can be confronted and then the path to healing can begin. If peace between brothers and sisters of Christ is to be real, 
It must be peace without illusion. Truth is the key to reconciliation. When we loose someone from the chains of sin, when we cut the bonds of behaviours that bind people into destructive patterns, we loose them for eternity. Whatever you bind or loose on earth will be bound or loosed in heaven, says Jesus. When we cut someone free from the web of deceit with the sharp-edged sword of truth, then they are free indeed. So we have to face the reality of sin and conflict in our personal relationships, within our community of faith, within our wider community of our denomination. And we have to meet such conflict with truth and with love. And as we do so, the kingdom of heaven breaks into our midst. As we take decisive action to bind Satan's power to deceive, distort and demean, we find that heaven and earth collide and people are released to new life that is theirs in Christ Jesus. This is why sin and forgiveness matter, but it is not easy. It is a hard calling, but it is our calling. So a moment of silence as we begin to prepare ourselves for the table. An opportunity perhaps for you to say before God the conflicts that you hold in your heart, the forgiveness you need, the forgiveness you seek to offer for others. In Christ alone, our hope is found. We're going to sing our communion hymn together now as we begin to gather around the table. So let us pray. Creator God, we come to you this morning remembering that not only have you made all things, but you have looked at your creation and seen that it is good. And not only have you seen that it is good, but you have also loved it. We thank you that we know this, but we also acknowledge that often we do not show it in our behavior and attitude towards other people. We pray that you will help us always to recognize that you made us all in your image. Whatever our race, gender, ability, health, appearance, or anything else. Too often we dismiss or reject those who are different from us forgetting the variety of skills and gifts you have given to us all. On this Pride anniversary weekend, 
We think especially of those who struggle to be themselves. For those who find it hard to accept their sexuality or to live with those who reject them because of it. We pray too for those who find it hard to accept those with a different orientation from themselves, that they may come to see you in each person. We also pray for on the ongoing racism in the world, preventing people from reaching their full potential and subjecting others to abuse. And we pray too for those who suffer from physical or mental disabilities, which limit their way of life. Help us to see when our own attitudes are the result of fear of the unknown or of prejudice against differences or our presumptions about other people. Give us the strength of purpose and the willingness to strive to build places of belonging where all may find a place in our community. We pray particularly for our congregation here at Bloomsbury that we may put into action our vision for a truly just society. Show us the directions we should take to accomplish this and give us the energy and commitment to achieve it. We pray these things in your name and for the sake of your good news for all. Amen.